Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello and welcome to episode 45 of the Osher Ginsberg podcast. Hi, I'm Osher Ginsberg. This is a weekly conversation with someone that I feel real inspired by. And if things go well, it's a conversation that'll inspire you as well. If you're new, welcome. Thanks for being here. Check out some old episodes. There's a lot now, 44 others. If you've been here a while, thank you for being here. If you like the show, please rate and comment in the iTunes store or uh, on your phone or online, and please subscribe using your favorite podcasting app, whichever you choose to choose to use. I use the uh, Pocket Casts. I've also used Opencast a little here and there, but the Apple one's okay still. Um, Pocket Cast as well on my Android phone. That works as well if you're into it. Go for it. Um, I had a few people uh, tell me while I was doing radio interviews for Bachelor this week that the last episode they heard was Jess Toby, um, but that's a bummer because I actually switched hosting providers back after that episode, and I guess there's been a glitch in the matrix with the redirect of the RSS. So the best way around that is to unsubscribe on your podcast app and then resubscribe. Should be right as rain, but episodes are always available at osherginsberg.com. The first anniversary show, that's coming up real soon. Um, I really want to make it a QA. and I want to make it a QA. and I, I did want to get your voice on. I wanted to get voicemails on. I, I, got, a, I got a bunch, but I'm going to need more questions to fill an hour. So shoot me an email, all right, will you? Just uh, write an email back to the autoresponder that you get on the uh, sign-up page, the um, mailing list page on uh, osherginsberg.com, and ask me your question. I'll do my very best to answer it. Um, my guest today is actor, director, producer, podcast god, Charlie Clawson. He's on Twitter at CX Clawson, C-L-A-U-S-C-E-N. More about him in a moment. Um, 
thanks to everybody that came and said hello at Splendor in the Grass. I went to Splendor in the Grass up in Byron Bay. It's a three-day-long camping festival. Um, my first festival in a really long time. I had a really great time. It had been. It's the first festival I've gone to since. Um, well, I haven't been to a festival since I stopped drinking, and it was uh, it was really good. I had a really good time. I had a really good time. Uh, I danced a lot. I ate a lot. I met some real interesting people. I met a lot of fans of this show. That's amazing. You know, I'd just be walking through the crowd, and people would stop me and say, "Hey, I really like the podcast." And I was, it just blew me away. Oh, it made me so happy. It made me so 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 happy. That's the first time that's ever happened. You know. To, to be getting stopped by people I don't know to tell me that they really like this show. That really blew my mind. But as you can probably hear by the way I'm talking, three days of camping in the cold, four hours sleep a night, and 30,000 punters in the dust and mud did take its toll on me. Um, my health started to give out on Tuesday, and thankfully the illness waited until my last live appearance for the big Bachelor primetime launch promo on Wednesday night and I was just in full-blown flu town. I haven't been this sick in a really long time. I mean, I went to the doctor. I collapsed as I was leaving his office. Um, come on home. I'm sleeping under all of the dunas. I had to wash the sheets midweek and not for any fun reason either. I just keep sweating through them when I sleep. Uh, but thankfully, I'm being cared for by dear friends who've come over, making soup, dropping off movies, hanging out. Uh, funny, I always forget to ask for help in these scenarios it seems odd to me but i get it i get it no one does this alone no one does this alone i hope you're doing okay this week i hope uh, that you're feeling good at least i know there's a lot of heavy shit going on in the world wherever you are listening i know people listen all over the world and there's a lot of heavy shit going on so wherever you are i hope that in your own way you're trying to be you know you're trying to do the best you can and and try and do the most good for those around you and um I hope you're doing okay, the best you can. Let me tell you about my guest. My guest, Charlie Clawson, is Australian podcast royalty. Yeah. He is um, he's one half of the colossally successful podcast TOFOP with Will Anderson. And he's one of my country's most visible actors. He's currently got a recurring role on the cornerstone Australian drama Home and Away. He's on the telly every night. Now, he and I talk about a lot in this show. And Charlie is very gracious how much he opens up. He talks about what it's like being the youngest of nine kids growing up. He also, we really get quite in depth and I'm really honored that he chose, that he, that he got so in depth about this with me. That We really talk a lot about how he dealt with the death of his father when he was only 10 years old. And so we do talk about that. If that's a trigger for you, that is on the way. He's a real inspiring man to me, Charlie. Um, he's a big believer in self-creating his destiny, which he and I get right into as the conversation unwinds. You can find Charlie on Twitter at CXClausen, C-X-C-L-A-U-S-E-N. Let him know you heard him here. And uh, do subscribe to his show, Tofop, because it is, it is superb. If you're interested in Batman hypotheticals and obscure AFL players, that's the show for you. So um, I believe it was a Saturday afternoon that he came around. A sunny Saturday afternoon in Bondo Beach. It's me and Charlie Clawson. Enjoy. Welcome, Charlie. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Should we me. shut the window or should we just let the sound of Bondi just go by? I don't know. It's kind of nice. I like the ambience. It is It is pretty good. Um, welcome. I'm glad you're here. One half of Tofop and all, all of Charlie Clawson. 
You're in my house. Yeah. How are you? I love how this happened. It's very fortuitous, wasn't it? Yeah. I, lo- I really love how this happened, particularly because it was the closing night of the Sydney Film Festival and we were on a red carpet and one of the photographers in the press line, I hadn't walked a red carpet in Australia for a long time. Mm. And it was the first one I walked in forever, right? Mm. And one of the photographers was like, oh, so you've changed your hair. Yes, pardon? Because <laughs> I can't hear very well. I see you've changed your hair, mate. What's, what's, what's going on with your hair? I, uh, and I was in the middle of just like being befuddled, like, what do I, what do I, how do I even, what am I? And then you gave him shit. You're like, come on, mate, hold up the line. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was because uh, I'd heard the, the, the podcast with Will and I really liked it. Cool. And so I thought, well, you know, six degrees of separation. Thank I should come up and introduce myself. But then uh, you actually knew who I was, which of was the surprise. I know who you are. I had no idea if you'd heard the podcast and stuff. <laughs> and that's the weird part when, like, more and more I'm starting to run into people on the street who will come up and talk about the podcast. And it's just, it's so weird because you know what it's like. You do it in isolation. You have no idea if anyone's listening. Like, Will and I had, we didn't, we just put it, online with no fanfare or anything, no publicity or anything like that. And then to have sort of people come up and talk to you about like conversations that you even forget. Like there's a lot of stuff that people reference that I don't even remember saying, which can be really confusing if they open up with a very obscure reference. Yeah, right. No idea. Why are you talking about James Gandolfini? I have no idea. And you were in a flow state, just like riffing on something. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, Will and I talk very fast and change subjects very quickly. So you know, since we've actually come back, uh, we've implemented the use of a blackboard. Ah, nice. <laughs> we'll, uh, just before we went on hiatus, Will spent quite a bit of money converting uh, his, uh, he's got a little granny flat out the back of his place into a podcast studio. Mm-hmm. Right? And then I very uh, conveniently told him that, well, I'm not going to be doing it for a while after we just spent all this cash, took out a bank loan to convert yeah, right. his granny flat. But when we started recording again, he's got this huge blackboard because the major sort of complaint or I guess maybe it's an endearing quality of the podcast is that we start topics and we never finish them. Like we get so excited about something and then halfway through that triggers something else. You do the Billy Connolly tangential arc, but you never really come back to one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we've started like, you know, we basically, because the way the podcast is working now is, you know, I've sort of got commitments here and Will's over in the States the majority of the year. So we're doing kind of mini bursts now. When we get together, we just record it, pre-record a whole bunch. Yeah. You know? And uh, we implemented this new system of, well, when we get into a topic that is interesting, let's write it on the blackboard and then we can come back to it. We still did not manage, even with that list of topics, by the end of, I think we recorded eight or nine episodes, it was like 17 topics. My. I think the last episode we tried really hard to just sprint through them and just give them <laughs> wrap-ups, you know, with none of the colour or flair that people were hoping for. Well, just what I was really interested to kind of start talking to you about was with like that night at the Sydney Film Festival, the closing mm. night, we went to watch um, uh, What We Do in the Shadows. What We Do in the Shadows, which is a fantastic mockumentary. So great. If you're, gonna, if you're only going to see one vampire mockumentary <laughs> this year, go and see What We Do in the Shadows. New Zealand film is yeah. so wonderful. Jermaine Clement and just uh, like, uh, what, what, was it Titi or Wakiki or whatever? I'm going to leave you alone on that pronunciation <laughs> train. I'll be standing over on the sidelines. But I was with a mate of mine. He's a film student, um, yeah. a friend of a friend. And, and I said, look, I'm going to this thing. He's going to so film school at the moment. It's like, come to this film thing and come. And so a state theatre, he, he's from the West Coast. He'd never been in the state theatre before. He was like, blah, blah, blah. And as soon as we got to the end of the red carpet, you turn around, you say, hey, hello. Hey, doing? I'm Charlie. I said, hey, man, I'm really you know, happy to meet you. I'd love to have you on my show. You said, that'd be great. I gave you my card and you walked away. 
And he, my mate looked to me, he's, I think he's like 19. He said, is that how it happens? <laughs> and what happens? Is that how oh, things on... in the industry happen? Right, yeah. And I turned to him and I'm like, and I th- oh, it was only at that point that I thought, you know what, yes. Yeah. The, the most significant, uh, uh, what's the word, uh, pinch points, critical points, like turning points in my career mm. have happened through moments it's, like it's that. meetings. Moments like that. Mm. And it just kind of blew my mind for a moment that, that was how it worked and that he was 19 achieving that and here I am at 40 just getting it. <laughs> so I was just wondering, like, how many times in your career have you walking up to someone saying, hey, I'm this? Because it's not what you know, it's who knows what you know. How many times in what, your career? So, sorry. <laughs> it's not only what you know. Yeah. Like I could have an accounting degree, but yeah, if yeah. no one knows I have an accounting degree, I'll, I'll never get right, any work. Right, right. It's who knows what you know. Yeah, sure. Okay. So particularly in the industry, that the entertainment industry, it's very much an industry of relationships and long relationships. And, yeah. And people, oh, you're over there now. Oh, you're working here now. Oh, you're working there now. I know a guy I used to work with four jobs ago. Yeah. And there's no ad in the paper. No. You know? I think that's right. I mean, because my, my sort of my career, I was – I was feeling a bit nervous about coming here today because, like, you know, when people want to talk about my career, like, I still don't know I have one. <laughs> like, I just tend to do things, you know what I mean? Like, I, I, you know, there's obviously I have goals and plans and all that kind of stuff, but, you know, I've sort of done a bunch of different things, you know, like I act and, you know, I've produced and uh, I write and, you know, the podcasting and these are all kind of the path of least resistance for me, you know what I mean? Like uh, I just sort of knew when I left high school that I had a mate, uh, a comedian, Michael Chamberlain, who, you know, I've known since I was 10 and Michael's always been a very, like, always an individual, always knew, you know, he, what he wanted to do and he just wanted to get into stand-up comedy. That's what he did. Like, and so we went to uni together and did a film degree at, at Deakin in, in Melbourne. And I thought, like, at the first I thought, well, it's, this is how it works. You get your degree, your degree qualifies you for a job, and then that leads to blah, 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 blah. But after three years of doing that degree, like, I, was, I, I knew less about film than when I started. Like, I was more confused and, and felt less knowledgeable than when I started. And then coming out of university, I worked at a production company just as a, as, um, uh, a runner. But this production company, they're now they're called Exit Films. They're now probably the biggest commercial production company in Australia, offices in Sydney and Melbourne. But in the day, they were just, it was like a creative hub. Like they had this warehouse in Richmond, really cool, open plan. Like people would ride razor, this is the 90s. So people would ride razor scooters around the office, you know, that kind of place. A bit like, you know, in Zoolander where you go to Hansel's place and yeah. there's a half pipe. And yeah, yeah. It was a, had that kind of vibe to it. But this guy who ran it, this really brilliant um, guy called Henrik, who was this Danish guy who'd come to Australia as a photographer and then started, started a production company. He had this philosophy of just a creative environment and, you know, from that. So he brought Michael in and a few other guys um, to write a comedy pilot. You know, he wanted to make a TV show and he'd Is seen... Is this the place that Charlie Pickering was? Yeah, Charlie Pickering. So he that's talked how I met at Charlie length Pickering. about that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It was very, it was very, I think it was very formulaic for Charlie and Michael and I because we spent a year there, not getting paid, but they gave us access to all their equipment, all their post facilities. They set up meetings for us. This was back in the days of um, probably about 2000, yeah, late 90s, 2000. And Henrik had this crazy idea that one day people would watch videos on their computers, that people would go to websites to watch videos. 
And we would go to companies like, oh, there's a bunch of dot-com companies that he would pitch, well, we've got these guys that can provide content. Everyone's like, no one is gonna watch TV on their computer, dude. Like, no one is gonna watch videos on their computer. He was so out of his time, the technology just hadn't caught up to his ideas. But in that year and a bit of us just kind of writing and producing stuff, it gave me a real idea that, oh, fuck, like, I had it backwards at university. I thought, well, you know, if I get this qualification, that will then lead to this. It's not about that. It's all about self-generating and, like you say, meeting people. If I hadn't met this Henrik guy, then I would never have met, you know, Charlie Pickering. We never met, you know, we went and made a pilot, which got us, like, a, a sketch comedy show, all this kind of crazy stuff. But you're right. Like, I think when you self-generate and... You know, this podcast is a perfect example. You know, you and I bump into each other, we say hello, and then it's like, well, why don't you just come around? And there's no need to go through your producer or set it up or can we book him in at this time? It's Saturday afternoon, we're getting together and talking. And to me, that is, you know, that is, that's why it doesn't feel like a career, you know? I just feel like it's kind of things that I'm interested in doing. And, you know, there's been t periods where I have not gotten paid and it's been really, really stressful. And I, like, I honestly would not know how I was gonna pay rent that week. But I don't fucking know how to do anything else. You know what I mean? Like, I remember James saying that to me one time. Uh, James Matheson, who I worked with on Australian Idol for many years, um, we were talking. I think it was uh, around about like season three or season four of Idol. He just turned to me and was like, "I don't know. How to, I don't know how to do anything else." Yeah. And I was dawned on me. It's like I don't know how to do anything else either. Yeah. It's kind of. I mean, I'm going to business school at the moment because oh, I'm yeah. like, yeah, because I'm like. I kind of need a few more, yeah, a few more tools yeah, to yeah, yeah. because we're now we're in the space of, you know, I love working for a network. I'm very uh, aware of the power that a network has, and big broadcast networks almost definitely have influence over a massive market for years to come. However, the time when content creators dealing directly with their audience is upon us. It's mm. happening right now, mm. and the ability for that to be a self-generating thing like there's there's no more I'm, I'm getting i get the feeling that there's no more we'll go pitch then someone will ask us to shoot a pilot and then we'll workshop the pilot and then we'll get it to air it's like we bring 12 finished episodes that have been on the web with 10 million downloads each to a network yeah. and they go we'll pay you for season two yeah and that's how it's got to be a mate of mine uh an actor richie pyrus he was staying with me at the start of the year he lives in london but he's out here and uh, he's mainly a theatre actor, you know, who's sort of a resident of STC and stuff, but he's been, you know... A Sydney theatre company. Sydney theatre company. It's a place of some repute. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, he worked with the... <laughs> Bit of a star factor. Kate Blanchett, I'm not sure if you've heard of her. Yeah. Kate um, with a K? But he, uh, he's, he's one of those actors who's done a lot of theatre but never done much TV and he was just, like, really determined, you know, that's his new focus is he wants to get TV work. Yeah. And so he came out here, um, so was staying with me, and then he went to Melbourne for five days. And when he came back... Um, because my girlfriend Gemma, she's a director and we have our own production company. And he said, oh, look, uh, I just shot something while I was in Melbourne. You guys just have a look at it and tell me what you think. And in five days, like he'd rounded up five of his mates, were all professional actors, and shot this pilot, um, which was terrific. Like it was brilliant and raw, obviously. And I just shot it on like a mini DV or whatever. But the acting was great. The writing was great. It was really, really good. And so then he said, oh, have you got anyone that you could send us to. So I started thinking, oh, I know this producer and that producer. And then as I'm doing that, I'm like, hang on, <laughs> like, why am I doing that? I actually have the background in production and, you know, I have the contacts. Why am I making something? Like, he went out and shot this in five days with absolutely no background in production. 
why aren't I doing that? So that's kind of, you know, that's my new, my new venture right now is I'm trying to, well, I've just written this pilot that Gemma and I are going to shoot in a couple of months, you know, just sort of keeping it all lo-fi, stuff that we can shoot on weekends if need be. But it's that philosophy of there, there is the technology now and the affordability to just go out and create something, you know, rather than sort of having to pitch an idea and sort of go back and forth and go through that process of sort of having it refined and refined, you just take the time to work it up yourself. Mm. And then, like you say, you present 12 episodes of season one. Well, it's, I, I think that's always existed. You know, it's always, I mean, I've had sitting in that chair right there, he's currently the, uh, the general manager, the CEO, the head honcho, the big cheese at Viacom, mm. Australia, New Zealand, and probably parts of Asia, Ben Richardson. He was uh, my first executive producer at Channel V. He went on to run MTV, uh, like Nickelodeon India, then Viacom Asia. Like the guy's a behemoth of the industry. Mm. Um, started making fanzines right. here in Sydney. Living in Narrabeen. Wow. He started making fanzines. Yeah, to photo- the kids out there, that would sort of, that's, that's a Photocopied, right? stapled together, hand typed oh, fanzines. But he was creating it himself. That's so Typed cool. it up himself, distributed it himself. And from there, started getting writing gigs in Waves magazine and things like that. So yeah. th- it's always existed. Yeah. But the difference between that and a magazine is vast. Mm. Okay. The difference between a hand typed mm. photocopied piece of paper and a magazine is vast. The difference between my podcast that I'm like costs me money to make mm. and a multi-million dollar radio broadcast in quality terms. Mm. Uh, Very minor. It, yeah. It's yeah. astonishing. You know, one of my colleagues at school, was, um, he was looking at my laptop. Uh, it's a MacBook air. And he goes, he's one of the, he's a composer speaks English, probably in his third language, <laughs> Dutch, you know, they, have, they can speak yeah. everything. He's like, it's remarkable that this machine that we use, is the same machine that the top scientists in the world use. Yeah, right. You know, there was a time when the machines that they used were so far out of our price range. Mm. But now we all use the same machine. Yeah, like our phone. I mean, don't they say that the, the technology or the power inside your iPhone is more advanced than what took uh, the astronauts to the moon Truly. in the 60s? Truly. It's insane. Yeah, it's, it's pre- pretty remarkable. So that's, I mean, if anyone takes anything from this at all, it's that this idea of just, just make it, mm. as Seth Godin would say. Pick yourself yeah. and just make it. Be shit for a while. And I just think podcasting too is like I don't think I, I, am, I have a natural aptitude for many things. <laughs> like I'm not musical. I'm not particularly athletic. Uh, but talking. You know, <laughs> I grew up in a big family. I'm the youngest of nine kids and there was just a lot of talking. Like I yeah. grew up and it's kind of weird because – it's not like that I don't like music. I like music, but I'm not fanatical about music like most of my friends. You know, like, you know, Gemma loves, Gemma has a pixie tattoo on her. Like that's how much she loves the pixies, right? And I like bands and, you know, I, I, like, I know all the songs of uh, Nevermind, but I couldn't tell you what the songs were called. But when it comes to, like, conversations and podcasting, like when podcasting started and I started listening to more and more podcasts, I was like, this is my music. Hmm. I love hearing conversation. Like I, even if it's in the background, you know, there's something very soothing to me and maybe it's related to being that, you know, six-year-old sitting around the dinner table listening to my older siblings talk. But I find it just so, it's so simple. There's such a beauty to it. Good conversation, obviously. Like, I mean, there's plenty of a name podcast out there or stuff that's, you know, more geared around pre-written sketches and stuff. But the ones I really, really like is when you get two friends sitting together and they just talk. And it's like reading a good book where you go, I know these people, you know, like one of my favorite podcasts is Tell Them Steve Dave, which is 
uh, Kevin Smith, you know, he started Smodcast and he basically pushed his friends who aren't entertainers at all into recording their podcasts because he thought they were funny and people would find them interesting. And to me, they are. And I know every single quirk about the relationship of these two guys. I've been friends for 30 years and I know every in and out of... So when I listen to it, it's just... Um, I find it as interesting and enthralling as a really good film or a really good book because I've got something emotionally invested in it. But anyone can do it. If you have a friend that you like to talk to, that's what Will and I, you know, Will and I are just doing what we would do in our spare time. You know, if we caught up or we'd be at a party, like we'd be the annoying guys at parties who would disappear in the corner and talk about Batman hypotheticals or, <laughs> you know, obscure Aussie rules footballers, you know. And so... We just thought, well, why don't we record it, you know? And I would encourage this whole idea that not oh, everyone has a podcast. Who gives a fuck? Like, everyone think, had a blog. Yeah. Everyone's got a Twitter it's account. Good. It's good. It doesn't mean you have to listen to them. Isn't it incredible? You've got a Twitter account. I've got a Twitter account. Kanye West has a Twitter account. <laughs> you know, it's just the, the, the difference between like that level of access to, to communication has never existed in human history before. Mm. And it's truly amazing. I do want to ask you though, yeah. I'm, I'm two of four. You're nine of nine. Yes. That's, <laughs> what's, what's the age range first? Uh, as in, so the eldest is yeah. uh, 53. So there's, well, there's, okay, let me ask you this. My, there's 11 years between my biggest brother and my littlest brother. Yeah, 18 years between my eldest sister. So basically there's a baby every year, every one to two years until 1973. And then there's a four-year gap. And then I was born. So I think I was, in, in fact, my mum told me how I was conceived. I think they were done. She was 42 when she had me and I think they were pretty much done. And then they won a raffle and they got tickets to Fiji and they got a bit frisky in the uh, resort pool. Bula, bula. <laughs> so then maybe I might be 5% chlorine in my DNA. I, uh, don't, don't swim in that resort pool in Nady. <laughs> yeah. Man, that's, a, well, after, you know, getting a holiday away from eight screaming children. Mm. That would have been unreal. Yeah, I'm surprised my dad had the energy. <laughs> What's it like being the youngest of... I only know what it's like being the second of... I know what it's like to have one big brother. What's it like to have eight big brothers and sisters? Um, I guess it's it's probably the same as if you have an extended... Are you close with your cousins or anything like that? Do we you, were when we lived in Brisbane and we were all kind of there. I mean, it's just to me, it's a bit like that. It's kind of an extended family that all live under the same house because obviously you're not going to have a lot in common when you're six years old with your sister who's in her 20s, you know, like... They're, and most of the older siblings, you know, like the top okay, four kids on. were moved you must out. Have, there must be heaps of photos of you, like six, seven years old, being cuddled <laughs> by your sister's hot friends. Oh, no. Uh, Come on. I don't know, I don't know if uh, that ever occurred. No. I, I, no. Girls didn't come around and go, oh, my God, Maybe. little Charlie. Maybe, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. Maybe I wasn't that attractive as a little kid. I look like Mr. Spock. I look like DJ from Roseanne. I had a little <laughs> bowl haircut and a squishy little nose. So maybe I wasn't that cute. Okay, fair enough. Uh, yeah, but uh, because, you know, the top four kids, they were all moved out by the time. So it wasn't like there was nine kids in that uh -huh. house. Um, but it was just, uh, I don't know. I mean, I... I, I What's been more specific with the question? Well, like, I don't know. It's like, what's it? You know, what do you what do you remember when, when you hear about other people who have? Say, okay, here's here's the here's the the things that come to mind. Like, I've, I've been. I was, there's never sweet biscuits in the house because <laughs> anything delicious gets eaten really quickly. Uh huh. Um, the uh, chores are divided into a timetable. Like you actually, it's broken down like a military system. So on Mondays, you know, Charlie has to set the table for breakfast in the morning, and 
everything has to be sort of run with that kind of precision. So, I mean, it seems so weird, but we would, you know, so you'd be rostered on to do the dishes that night. And then when you'd done the dishes, you'd have to then set the table for breakfast the next day. So you'd virtually lay out four boxes of cereal, you know, uh, like eight bowls, you know, eight spoons, sugar, you know, all this kind of stuff and leave that. So in the morning, everyone would come in and like locusts would descend on the table and eat. Um, what else could I think of? Just a lot of fighting, you yeah. know, I mean, not, not like malicious fighting, but just kind of, you get, it's like big brother. You get that many people in a house together. There's going to be kind of conflict, but, um, my family are all very much individuals. Like I, we're not the kind of family who hang out together all the time or, you know, we're best friends, but I love all of them and we get on really well, but everyone is very much their own person. I remember going to mates houses when I was a kid, mates with like, who didn't have four children in the house. Mm. And the number one thing I noticed was A, it was clean. Yeah, right. And B, it was quiet. It was quiet. Yeah. No, it was never quiet at my house. Never quiet. But also I think there is a kind of, um, I mean, you know, I'm actually really seeing the benefit of the big family now just because, um, you know, when things happen, uh, you know, someone gets ill or, you know, there's some need for the family to come together, then you have an immediate immediate assist team. Like if anyone in our family gets into some kind of trouble, financial, health, whatever, there is a support network mm -hmm. that ordinarily would not be there. You know, there is something about that bond of family. You know, you'd never let your siblings, you know, uh, fall by the wayside or your parents or whatever. And, you know, I think it's just, you know, with my mum especially, I just feel so kind of um, grateful that mm. I had the opportunity to repay the enormous sacrifice, and it is enormous. Like I'm only just really, as as an adult myself, you know, getting closer to the age she was when she had me, realizing what she gave up, you know. And I talked to my mum about it very recently, you know. Just, um, you know, she had dreams. You know, she said that if she hadn't met my dad, she imagined she was an artist. She would have travelled to Paris and had lots of affairs, and you know. She didn't. She got married and pumped out kids for 20 years and then, you know, all that stuff went away. And I'm, I live a very uh, self-centred life. Like, you know, Gemma and I luckily work in the same industry, so our goals and our drives are the same. But I don't have children that, to be responsible for. Um, I can do what I want. I can live anywhere I want. And that's something that she never had. And she still managed to do it. She had all the reason in the world to be a manic depressive or, you know, to be resentful, but she wasn't, you know. And that's, it's just one of those things. I, when my, uh, my father died when I was 10 and my mum kept a diary over that period of time and uh, I'd made a short film called The Wake, which is, did quite well for us at festivals and it was all about, you know, the day of uh, my father's funeral, which is, you know, it was a bittersweet kind of thing. A lot of funny things happen, a lot of weird things. You know, I'm very philosophical about, you know, life and death, you know, having gone through that. I, I don't get... People always apologise when, you know, you find out your father died. And it's like, well, no, you know, I actually think it's worth... These things are worth discussing and exploring because it's only fearful when you lock it up somewhere and you don't, you know, examine it. But when I was... I've written a, a feature-length version of this film and so um, I asked Mum if I could get her diary. I just wanted to read you know, what it was like. And so what happened with my father is he got sick around about my birthday, which is July. And then over a six month period, just sort of got worse and worse and worse. You know, was hospitalized. And then his last two months is in a coma. And then he just passed away. Basically just body breakdown, lots of different things contributed to it. So when I read my mum's diary, it starts off 
very matter of fact, you know, get the shopping, blah, 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 get the car service, blah, blah, blah. And then she starts getting more and more um, revealing, just mm -hmm. more talking about her mental state. And it was just like, I remember one night, you know, going in to visit my dad and it was just me and her and she would go in every night and, you know, I'd probably go in a couple of times a week and he was particularly unwell. I think they were having to force feed him. It was a bit of a traumatic kind of experience. And so we were sort of hustled out of his ward and we went down to the car and it was one of those horrible Melbourne winter's nights where it's fucking pissing with rain and we get in the car and I'm like, the car, the car won't start. And I remember her just like crying. And then I read the diary entry and it's like, that was just a tip of the iceberg of the issues she had. We had no money. My sister was struggling at high school, all this stuff going on. My mum had to not only be a mother, but then deal with losing her life partner. You know, it's just, after I read it, I just had to call her up and say, mum, if I was ever an asshole as a teenager, I'm so sorry, because it was, it's superhuman what she went through. And like I said, she's had every excuse in the world to, you know, be resentful or bitter, but she's not, you know, she has not lost that kind of warmth and positivity. And she's very new age, you know, for a Catholic, <laughs> she's very new age. She's into meditation. She's into regression therapy, all this kind of stuff, you know, but I think that is just, if I could be like a 10th of that, you know, at her age, then I'm going to be okay because she's just, what she's dealt with and how where she is now has just been incredible. You, you thank you for talking about that. Thank you for sharing about that. I mean, any I, you know, think now mates of mine, their fathers have died. Uh, some, you know, through uh, health degradation like yours, and others through through accidents, tragic mm -hmm. accidents. But I remember particularly just flashing in my mind then when I was in grade six, eleven, a little older than you were. One of my classmates, her father died. And that was 86, 85. And it was just like, okay, nobody talk about it. Yeah, right. No one mentioned a thing to her. No one talk about it. No one talk about death. Mm. No one mentioned dads. They even said that in the class. Oh, they really? said, nobody said, just don't talk about dads or fathers really? for about a month. And it was That's like, and no, well, none of us knew what to do. Yeah. And I, I, you know, we were boys and so we would throw stones at girls. So we didn't, I didn't know, but I kind of met like, mm. what were your mates like? I think you were uh, ten. I mean, do guys, do ten-year-olds even know? Well, because we got this fantasy that like that it's like some sort of stand by me. We sit around the campfire yeah. and we kind of bust it apart like adults. But I can't. Um, I can't remember because uh, the year my dad died, I just started at a new school, so I had a lot of new friends. So I don't think anyone I went to school with came to the funeral or even mm -hmm. visited or anything like that. I don't have any memory of those friends. I do remember. Because, you know, after someone dies, it's not like, you know, the grief goes on for X amount of time. Like, I think for me, especially when you're about to hit puberty, you know, and then all your daddy issues come up. So I think there was moments, I do remember a couple of years later, another friend that went to school with, his mother died quite tragically. I think she committed suicide. Oh. And we went to that funeral and it's the, it had been the first funeral that I had been to since my father's funeral. And I remember just getting overwhelmed and I just started crying. And the guys I went to school with sitting with me got really shitty with me, really angry. Why are you crying? Why are you crying? It's not your mum. Don't embarrass yourself. It was their reaction. They were feeling awkward and uncomfortable, but their reaction was not, you know, um, to comfort. I, I don't blame them. I mean, they're just, they're, they're, they would have been 12 year old. Yeah 
boys, you know, and yeah. it's very confronting. And that's probably the first funeral that they'd been to, you know, and, and the circumstances around it was probably, but it's not like that. It didn't, all that taught me, it wasn't like it sort of made me suppress or it just made me realize that there's certain people, you know, you can talk to about that stuff. But that's like, you know, when I brought it up with you, I just opened up by saying, look, I'm fine to talk about it because, I mean, it's been, what, 25 years since he died. And, and I've had lots of time to think about it and go over it. Um, it doesn't really affect me emotionally anymore in the same way, you know, of, of, of you know, you think about loss or whatever. But um, it, it just sort of, I guess it's made me more sensitive to people who are going through the same thing or, because like you, I've got friends now who are at an age where they're starting to lose parents. Mm -hmm. And I just know that, sometimes you just want to talk about it without actually having a resolution. Like there's nothing that anyone can say. Um, you know, like I went to a funeral for a friend a couple of years ago and his parents had printed up this little pamphlet and it was a list of uh, things to not ask us or <laughs> to say. Like don't ask us how we feel because we don't know how we feel. Don't be scared to mention his name. We want to talk about it. You know, it was, and it was actually really good because there is that thing. You don't know how someone's going to react. And I, f I feel like you don't, you, it, it's a very personal experience that person is going through and you don't want to be the person to hit the, the trigger that, you know, makes them freak out, which is a totally understandable point of view. I, you know, maybe it's arrogance or whatever. I have a belief that anything can be discussed if it's discussed intelligently and balanced. You know, I'm not going to discuss, you know, your uh, parents' death for exploitation, I'm going to do it because I think there's something to be gained from examining it, you know, and if it gets emotional, it gets emotional. But I also think that, you know, you can analyze these things from lots of different angles, philosophical, spiritual, you know, and I would rather do that than not, you know, at the risk of having to go into some dodgy emotional areas, you know. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't lose my parents. My parents are still alive. They're, they're old, but they're still alive. But I do, my dad did leave when, when I was 11 mm. and big brother, my big brother, who's 23 months older. Not the voice from the TV show. No, no, no. Whether he wanted to or not became that. Yeah. And I didn't realize it either until years later, but he became that mm. for me. Was that the same yeah, for you? Yeah, yeah. I, um, <clears throat> I have uh, two older brothers. One of them was living out of home, but um, I had one brother who was very close to my dad. And, you know, I, I think in his mind, he would have been 20, 22, 23, and he took it really, I think he felt a tremendous amount of responsibility to the family that he was now, you know, he was going to have to be the man. And um, I don't know what it was like for you, but there was a lot of people, you know, through my teens who tried to adopt that father figure role for me, including my brother. And I rejected all of them because it just, it, it's, it's, you, you cannot, no one can impose that upon you, you know what I mean? That bond you have with your, you know, your father, be it biological or your adopted father, is like a very special relationship. And it's not like someone can just come in and all of a sudden that's, that's their role. But what I realized was I wanted father, I wanted a father figure or I needed to get my lessons from men, um, but it was through my friends. Like I started hanging out, a lot of my friends uh, older than me, you know, like Will's five years older than me. I've got friends five, 10 years older than me. And when I was in my late teens, early 20s, I was hanging out with these guys 
And I feel like it wasn't like any one person, but it was all of them, you know. Uh, I was taking lessons from all of them, you know, and I don't know if, um, I don't know if it's just me or if everyone needs that kind of paternal, like if you're a young guy and you need that uh, father figure, but it definitely worked for me, you know. I mean, I think I, I also feel very lucky that I was raised by all women, you know. I mean, my house was, it was pretty much all women growing up from the age of 10. Uh, how many How many elder brothers? I've got two older brothers. And, and that, the rest are girls? Yeah, yeah. You and Jimmy are the same. Oh, really? Jimmy Matheson, yeah, he's one boy. He's got five sisters. Oh, really? One younger, four older. And yeah. I always used to envy, he was just, he's just the most compassionate man I've ever met. And I was like, how do you, and after a while at Dornham, it's like, oh, you I think just is. always known what what it's like to be around women, and I think so. Yeah, I can that. always tell when a guy has grown up with a lot of sisters or a single mother or something. There's just a difference. It's a softness, you know, and not in a judgmental, not talking weakness, but there's just a kind of sensitivity mm -hmm. that I think can only be gained from spending a lot of time with women, like especially friends of mine who only have brothers. You know, that's me. Yeah, like it's it's it's, yeah. it's 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 and you went to an all boys school as I well, did. right? So <laughs> yeah, it was hopeless. Women were basically an they alien species. They still are. Yeah, I still right. don't know. I'm forty. I've been married once. <laughs> I still I still don't know. Uh, before we want to talk about father figures, just something popped in my head, and yeah. you know, considering we're on the topic about funerals, I just felt for a moment. I've always felt a little guilty when I'm having a really good time at a wake. <laughs> No, that's really. Wakes you know, some of the wakes. That's what I'm saying. Best, like yeah. I've had, I've been to wakes. Yeah. Wake being the the word. I don't know whoever's listening to this wherever, but yeah. there's the thing in our culture that when someone dies, you have there's drinks back at their house or whatever. Yeah. I've been to wakes that are just out of control. Fan, <laughs> just fantastic, beautiful, yeah. emotionally nourishing. Yeah. Wonderful fun. Yeah, I've been to funerals. That have been fun. You know, we had a family friend who died tragically on a treadmill. He was, you know, 50 something and he had six, seven kids. And you would have thought like, I mean, the kids got up and performed and it was such a celebration and the eulogies were hilarious. And I mean, it was beautiful. Like it was really beautiful. And I mean, it's the, it's the most self-indulgent fantasy that we all observe our own funeral. Yeah, there? right. <laughs> to, to see what people say. But, I mean, that's what I, would, that's what I would want, you know. I mean, I think that, look, obviously the circumstances around the person's death can dictate, mm. you know, the, the nature of the funeral. But I don't know what is to stop someone from celebrating a life, mm. you know. It's interesting, though, in our culture, we celebrate so much the birth. Mm. just so much it's just joy and balloons and 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 funny photos on reddit and yeah. all kinds of things around birth but we tend to conveniently forget that it, there's another end and yeah. well yeah and that why don't we celebrate that celebrate like, you know and and the other thing that does pop into my mind is that something like and this is a deeper question mm. something like 98 percent in the u.s i'm pretty sure there's 98 percent of all healthcare costs you'll accrue in your entire life occur in the last two years of yeah, your life right. and if we were to redefine what it was to start to lose our health and to be an acceptance of death mm. I'm not, I'm not, I'm just asking the question. Yeah, I'm not yeah, saying yeah. I have the solution, but you know, I just wonder like, is there a, 
Well, it, it, it is an it's interesting a deep question. It you know? is an interesting thing. I mean, I do wonder about, you know, like, uh, well, uh, you know, the, the, all the research that's going into, you know, curing disease and stuff. And it's like, but what? And, and again, it's a it's a sticky sticky subject. But like, but what are we what are we achieving? Like, mm. what is the ultimate goal here? Immortality? Like, is that prolonging life? I mean, I just can't think of anything worse than unless we're going to travel to space to places where the journey is longer than the human lifespan yeah i mean well, i mean would we run you, out of space like what would you as immortality anything you've ever fantasized about I only when i used to be really into highlander <laughs> only when i i can fall in love i can grow old and die where you had a french actor playing a, a scottish oh. highlander and you had a scottish actor playing an egyptian oh that's fantastic <laughs> it's such a shit movie it does it's great it's it, excellent the i rewatched one, it i, will, I, will I rewatched it one. i was minding a friend's 15 year old like not quite old enough to be you know we were and he said oh we're going out to dinner can you look after the kid I'm like all right and i'm on netflix i'm like let's watch highlander yeah. it's, it's amazing i've watched it a hundred times when yeah. i was your age we watched it it's like this really long like you know the how's the opening in the wrestling uh, the look, intercut with the wrestling uh, it's, it's so incredible. 80s but like that's what it is it's like the the 10 minutes of an r kelly video before yeah. the song starts <laughs> but it goes for an hour and a half yeah Russell, and it's just like well that was weird lens choices and floodlights coming down streets well you know it's directed by russell Mulcahy. The Aussie, he, he, he the Aussie director. Back and, yeah razor back but he yeah. started he was a music video guy like well, he, he was the range around videos didn't yeah, he? yeah yeah it started off doing in excess and everything but like i mean he's basically been on record saying that was when the music industry was fueled by cocaine <laughs> like it's like we need more lights more laces like everything was give me big. three I mean, I, don't, I think Michael Bay has kind of taken that philosophy. Yeah, to, right. He hasn't stopped. But I've been, think, I've been thinking about it. Like, no, I don't want to live forever. Absolutely not. I've been thinking about it a lot, actually. What, at what age would I be like, you know what? Just get me some of that top quality morphine. Bring everyone in to say hi. And then let me go. Don't worry about it. Yeah. So it's going to be all right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, like, at what age would I want that? You know, and... Well, yeah, that's a thing too. Like, I mean, if it was, uh, if it was a hypothetical, if you could choose immortality, you know, at any point, like what age do you do it? Because I'm actually, if someone had offered it to me in my twenties, I would have been an idiot to take it then because I was, I, that's not, I was not happy with who I was then. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like, I, and, and also like, it's just, it's one of those, it's ridiculous because it's completely, it's a fantasy <laughs> hypothetical, but you know, I think the, the 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 deeper question is like, well, what are you afraid of? Mm. I mean, immortality is you know the cheating of death, but and I don't believe in an afterlife. I don't believe in heaven or, or God or anything. I'm pretty sure that when you die, it's just you know you go back into the kind of ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm okay with that, but that's only because I'm not staring into the abyss. You know, if I get a horrible diagnosis from a doctor next week, then this may be a very different discussion. <laughs> you may find I'm reading every fucking. <laughs> book on religion yeah. or the afterlife and you know i mean growing up catholic i did believe in god for a while you know and i, I was really into it and i even went to india and worked with these missions as you know my school had a, a scholarship so i went and, and did that and over there i was really like oh my god like i can see the benefit of religion you know because these missionaries weren't bible bashers or out to convert people it was literally just social work you know, they'd just go to an area of town where people were disadvantaged and they would help them structure systems to get wells built in schools. And, you know, why don't we mediate a discussion with that next village over there so you guys can share resources? It was, you know, and then at the very end of it, 
they would talk about, well, there was this guy, Jesus Christ, and he had these ideas about, you know, treating each other the way you would want to be treated. Perfect, you know? You go to a mass in one of those villages and it looked nothing like the masses that you go to here. It was literally people getting together, sharing their problems, and then going, well, why don't we just, you know, talk about this guy for an instance, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of lessons. I totally get that. That makes sense to me. But it was coming back here and then going back into the church. And, you know, the school I went to is very privileged. You know, there's a lot of um, sons of very powerful, uh, you know, men. And they would Monday to Friday be laying off workers and, you know, destroying like rainbows and stuff. And then on Sunday going and, and getting a clean bill of health spiritually, as far as I'm concerned, I'm just like, that's not, that's not the rule that was it, And that was it for you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I came back from India as a, I was 18 or 17 or 18 thinking, okay, cool. I mean, to be honest, the, it was a Jesuit school and the idea behind the scholarship is the kids they selected would then be funneled into the priesthood. That mm -hmm. was, I, you know, I think they had me earmarked for uh, like a life in, in clerical service. But um, yeah, I just couldn't, I just, I just think that you need to have more flexibility. You know, I, the idea that, you know, if there is an afterlife, if there is some kind of cosmic force or being or um, system, the idea that our simple little monkey brains could comprehend the complexity of what that being is thinking, it doesn't make any sense to me. Like, why would heaven just be a version of earth, you know, with the same kind of like petty uh, grievances like you know the old testament got a real prick you know a real grumpy vindictive prick yeah. you know making people kill their own kids and you know turning brother against how much brother. do you love me you really love me yeah. kill your child to yeah. prove it yeah that's not a god i really want to i, I, I want to believe just kidding just kidding <laughs> you know what it was a test and you passed <laughs> so that, your story is not uncommon though but I, I would like as someone would you say that you're you know, I, I got baptized and confirmed only because it was like, that's what we... Were you raised Catholic too? Uh, I think so. I was you raised with a foot in both. I was raised with a foot in both because dad's dad's Jewish. Okay. And so I'm half Jewish just from the waist up. And <laughs> thank you. It's a foreskin gag. Um, so... You really need clarification. Oh, okay. uh, yeah, just in case you're wondering. Uh, so... You don't have to show me either. No, no, no. no. It's, it's, okay. it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. So, yeah, we were always, always raised with, like, that's part of our heritage as well. That's part of our heritage. And then somewhere around about 11 or 12, it was coming out of a confessional box at some point going, hang on a second. That's weird. Nothing different has happened. Yeah. This is a bit odd. Yeah. And then I kind of went through the rest of it feeling, whoa, so guilty about masturbation and everything, everything, yeah. everything, everything, everything. And then I was fairly – I mean – I like mass because we were the band and, and we got <laughs> to showbiz, play. right? Yeah. That was my first. Total showbiz. I was an altar boy. And to me, like I'd go backstage and put on my, like, my, my costume. I'd go out in front of a captive audience. That was like my first taste of showbiz. And that priest was like a rock star, you know. <laughs> they get treated really well, you know. They've got a captive audience. It, yeah. I definitely was into that side of it, the pageantry and the performance. We played a metal version of the Our Father. Did you really? Ah, yeah, it was great. It was almost slayery. <laughs> Seriously? Yeah. It was killer. Excellent. Yeah, it was back in the we played them. Yeah. That was back in the day. But then, you know, it kind of kind of passed me by. So what are your thoughts then as someone who's kind of visited that quite in a dedicated way? Like there's not many 17, 18 year olds who would go to India and, mm. and do that kind of work. What's your vibe on the on the new Pope? On, I don't want the Pope and be a Pope. On uh, yeah. stop worshiping money as a false god. Yeah, he's look. I mean, 
I think that, uh, like, Vatican II in the 70s, that was the first huge revolution. Uh-huh. What do you mean we're not going to speak Latin anymore? Yeah, exactly. Come on, that's how we yeah. keep them confused. And that's like a lot of, pro- I think a lot of Catholics were, progressive Catholics were really excited by that. And then as Pope John Paul II got more ill and then Ratzinger, Ratzenberger, what is his mm-hmm. name, came in, it sort of t- took a backward step. But I don't know. I mean, look, to me, he's just like the PR wing of a corporation. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I, I think that they do good and bad and he seems to be a, a really nice public face. I'm sure he's like, believes 100% what he's saying, but ultimately, you know, gay people are second. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Class citizens, you know, and uh, divorce is a sin and you shouldn't masturbate and all these kind of things. It's like as nice as the guy is. Donald three. Are you doing it right now? <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, yeah, I just, um, you know, I just, I just kind of, uh, to me, it's like, well, you're, you're, a, you're a charming figurehead, but the corporation or the, you know, the institution is ultimately flawed. So it doesn't matter how charming you are. It's mm. like, well, it's not, he's not going to draw me back in like it would take a tremendous turnaround in policy and you know release i mean they own so much property all over the world the catholic church owns so much the vatican is so wealthy and it's like this is the one of the basic tenets you know is that uh, is being it'll be easier for a poor man to enter the kingdom of heaven than a rich man to pass through the eye of a needle like that's in the bible yet the institution that teaches that is one of the wealthiest, you know, and doesn't seem to be sharing a lot of that with the disadvantaged. Look, they do an enormous amount of charity work, mission work, of course. But I think if you go to the Vatican and you see how opulent it is, it's just like I'm getting mixed messages here, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Well, there's a phrase, uh, and I'm sure you've, there's a phrase, be quick to see where religious people are right. So where would you say that there's some... Oh, benefits. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the only, the, the best. Are there universal truths about it? Oh, of course. Like, you know, I think every religion and, you know, the priests that I was, the missionaries I was working with, um, and here's the thing about Jesuits is they're, they're cool. <laughs> they're really cool. Like Jesuits have a really interesting history, 500-year history in the Catholic Church where, um, you know, they've been excommunicated a number of times by the Pope or by the Vatican for challenging the doctrine or challenging a system of thinking and they're generally very well-educated, very uh, lateral thinking men who just happen to believe in God and, and Jesus and, you know, they dedicate this life to this thing. So the priest that I was chatting to over there 
they were not seeing a hell of a lot of difference between Islam, Catholicism, Judaism. Basically, the philosophy of every religion is the same, which is just be nice to each other, you know, and, and help each other out, you know. There's different reward systems and approaches, but it's all... Different of, punishment systems as well. Different punishment systems. But I think philosophically, they're all the same, and then that gets built upon, like the institution, uh, you know, more people start adding to it and, 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 and all these little caveats, and it's just like the simplicity of help people who need help and be nice to each other. That's, I don't think I need everything else to follow that. But having said that, you know, my mum goes to church, you know, she used to go to church every day. I think she only goes a few times a week now, but for her, it's a completely different, it's a community, you Mm -hmm. know, and she's a totally, you know, half her kids, I've got two, three gay siblings, you know? Uh, So she, She's a progressive, progressive Catholic and there's a lot of things she disagree with. You are the mathematical perfection of the fraternal birth order effect. Uh, yeah, well, as in terms of... The fraternal birth order effect is that each child is 33% more likely to be born homosexual yeah, well, in multiple birth families. if you actually go down families. my family tree, it goes straight, gay, straight, gay, straight, gay, straight, gay, straight, straight. <laughs> right, with me, it's straight, straight, gay, straight. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the third, the third brother, boom. Yeah, right. And, and so many, like I went to an all-boys school, you can imagine, all-boys Catholic school, so you can imagine how many, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, that, yeah, I mean, just on a percentage basis, it's hilarious yeah. when you see, you know, codes like the NRL or the AFL sort of players freaking out about letting homosexuals play. It's like, I'm pretty sure there's quite a few already <laughs> just on a percentage basis. Yeah. I always, that it was always kind of interesting to me is like, particularly in, in professional male professional sports that men worried about gay men playing or being in their locker room, in my opinion, my opinion only, perhaps they're only worried about gay men being in their locker room because they are afraid that gay men will look at them the way they look at women. Oh, of course. <laughs> totally. I read this fantastic book um, called Night Games or Night Moves by uh, Anna Crean. And it was, it's basically about Australian sporting culture, particularly in uh, AFL and NRL. And it sort of picks up. That's, that's two of the four codes of football we have in this yeah. game. Four? Four. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, that's Australian, AFL is the Australian Football League and NRL is the National Rugby League. There's yeah. also the National Rugby Union, Union and League. then the Australian Soccer, Soccer League. League. Yeah. yeah. Um, and this book is, it's a female journalist and it's, it's, it sort of picks up at, during a rape trial of a, a footballer who, you know, has been accused of rape. But it, it, it explores a lot of very complex issues mainly to do with power and um, male domains, you know, and the fact that like football clubs 20 years ago, like females were virtually non-existent. There's a lot of board members and, and the coaching staff now who are female. But in this one uh, case you talked about, one of the NRL teams had a Respect for Women seminar and they were showing them this... Uh, Hang on, is this a book fiction or non-fiction? It's a, it's a non-fiction. It's oh. like she was a journalist following oh. this trial and so she spent a lot of time with different clubs. Okay. And so she went to this seminar on Respect for Women with these uh, rugby players and they showed them this, you know, in one of those training videos. And the scenario in the video was two guys at a bar drinking with a girl and then they all go back to the guy's place and then they cut to a scene where the guy's walking out of his bedroom doing up his fly and he nods to his mate, you know, why don't you go and have a go? So they stop the video and they say to the guys, do you see any issue with this? And the guys were like, well, no. You know, she went back to the house with the guy, so obviously she was keen. I'm like, okay, let's show the next video. The next video is two guys hanging out at a bar. They have a few drinks. They go back to the guy's house. One guy passes out. The other one starts having sex with him. They stop the video. She said, this time there's like a deadly silence amongst the players. And they're like, do you see anything wrong with this video? And they're like, yeah, well, you know, Pufta took advantage of that guy. And, you know, 
he didn't want and, and I said okay but you see the inherent hypocrisy in what you're saying but the point she was making is that it is so far removed from their understanding you know they from the age of 15 you know they've been surrounded by guys playing a very male-dominated sport and their introduction or exposure to women you say that you you know had little exposure these guys are even more far removed from that and their understanding it's it's a it's a basic fundamental misunderstanding of the situation let's be clear we're not talking about a whole league here we're talking about a, a, a club a, 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 a a, num- a small number of men in a vast yeah, swathe of I think, men. I think, it's I, not every guy no, no, in the no, NRL. No, no, no. I think, look, I think most, I think both the AFL and the NRL definitely have a respect, respect for women um, seminars, which is just to, there's been, there's been a lot of bad press recently about, you know, um, sexual assault allegations, rape, all that kind of stuff. So this is an, a very positive attempt by both those organisations to kind of educate their players. But what this uh, journalist is, what she discovers is that the golf is so huge and mm. it starts at such an early age. You know, she was sort of talking about, well, maybe in 20 years, like, you know, that now there's women on the board at football clubs and there's maybe in another 20 years, you know, we'll even have like, maybe there'll be a female football league that's just as kind of, you know, uh, popular as, but who knows? You know what I mean? It's, it's, just, it's just one of those things where, you know, you kind of only know your world and I don't think a lot of these guys are intending to disrespect women it's just that they don't know any different I learned the very hard way what do you I, mean? I learned the very hard way once I started working in radio yeah once I started like because I I went like I left high school then I went to work in, in a band as a roadie mm. an all-male band I was 17 the next youngest guy to me was 27 mm. we were on the road man like mm. five sets of night covers up and down the coast yeah and so I, again, I've got a fairly warped view of what men and women yeah. did. And especially in that environment where it's not real, you know it what I mean? Alcohol, it was late, there was the allure of the stage. You know, they're the girls that are coming to talk to you because they've seen you, you know, on stage. I was a roadie, dude. I was just... Well, you were flashing around the bands with laminates or something. <laughs> no laminates, man. They were shitty cover bands, man. <laughs> it was a long time ago. But yeah, you're right. You only know the world you live in. Yeah, and I think it's kind of... Uh, you know, and uh, we, especially in this, you know, the, the world we live in now, it's all instant gratification and it's all like, you know, we're online, you, you know, your you, you Twitter and your Facebook and, and everything is like, I've got three seconds attention, you know, <laughs> and what we forget is that human beings are far more complex than that. You know, the girl who's a sex pot also has concerns and flaws and insecurities and hopes and dreams and stuff, you know, and the guy who's the meathead football player also has lots of, but we feel the need or we're getting trained to saying, well, you're that person, this is what you are and that and dismissing the rest of it. And it's kind of easier to um, disrespect someone when you don't see them as a fully formed human being. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. It's the easiest. Once you dehumanise somebody, it's super... And I do it constantly, not like necessarily in a kind of like a, like a, to women, but I, pre, I catch myself prejudging people constantly. Constantly, and I don't know why I do it, but like I go into situations going, I'm not going to like this person, or you know, this person's going to be like this, and then I'm always completely amazed by, oh no, this person is interesting and complex and has lots of different things. Like, why I don't know, it's obviously my own insecurity and my defensiveness that I feel a need to kind of like prejudge someone, but you know, more often than not, I just need to have a 
half an hour conversation with someone and then like I'm turned around. Sometimes it doesn't have to be half an hour. Sometimes yeah, it can be, true. it could be less than that. It can be, but we're, like you said, we're so used to not only judging people at face value, but now we're judging people at the greatest hits version of themselves on mm. Instagram or Facebook. It's, it's that, I, I heard you talking with Will about the clickbait, yeah. you know, and that's kind of what we're wanting to do in our normal lives now. Like, you know, I, um, I have a lot of friends who are, uh, you know, in their twenties and stuff, and they're sort of just going. You know what it's like when you're just trying to find yourself, and you know, this is the music I like, and that music's shit, and this is the films I like, and those kind of films are shit. And when you're in your twenties, it's all about defining yourself. You know what I mean? And it's like, this is what I am. This is what I'm not. Yeah. That just goes. <laughs> I don't know what happens. Oh, yeah. You hit your thirties, you're like, I just want, I just want, I just want people to be nice to each other, and I just and want to be the things I'm into. Right. Oh my god! Like your twenties oh. is so challenging. But I just keep trying to remind these guys. It's like you don't have to define yourself by what you hate, because that's kind of <laughs> the easiest way to say this is who I am is by saying that person sucks, yeah. or that band sucks, or this situation sucks, this bar is horrible. And it's like. That negativity, I understand what you're doing. You're trying to say, yeah. I am good for disliking Fuck this. you, hipsters. Yeah. Fuck you, Nickelback. Who gives a well, shit? Well, well. Yeah. <laughs> okay, let's not put the baby out the bathwater. <laughs> but, I mean, honestly, like, Nickelback, fuck. Like, I was going through my friend's phone last night. She just got onto um, iTunes Radio and she's, um, you know, she's, she's a classic example of she was a, a girl who was weighing a medal like into, uh, you know, Metallica when she was a 14-year-old, dressed like a boy, went to like, you know, she went and saw Guns N' Roses when she was 13. And she's been rediscovering all this kind of metal that she never listened to, like Pantera and stuff. And so she's showing me on her phone. So I'm scrolling through all these like classical, you know, uh, Lamb of God and stuff. And then I go, is that Limp Biscuit? <laughs> and she was like, yeah. And I was going, my immediate, the 20-year-old in me was going to make fun of them. I'm like, you know what? I have more than once listened to a Limp Biscuit song and sung along to the chorus. You know what I mean? Sure, I would not buy a ticket to go see them in concert. No. <laughs> but who cares? You know what I mean? Like, it's again, it's that thing, the complexity of who that person is. There's lots of shit that I like that people would think is stupid, but it means something to me, you know? And it doesn't, just because I, you know, I'm into comic books, doesn't mean that I'm a comic book nerd. I am. But, you know, I'm also a bunch of other things as well, you know? It's just... The, the older I get and the, the more kind of people I, I talk to and the more time I give people, I think is probably the key to it, the more it's just like everyone's interesting, you know. To everyone's extent. interesting. And like a big part of why I do what I do or I have done what I've done is because of one particular television show that was had that at its absolute core. It was a show not on anymore. It was a show on SBS. It was a show called Front Up, hosted by a guy called Andrew Urban, mm. who would just walk up to people in the street, completely random people in the street, and say, hey, Dawn, what's your name? Mm. And then just get people to start talking. And without fail, I mean, obviously it's edited, but every person he talked to, every person story. that aired, not just a story, but an incredible story. Yeah. And in, what, their father had fought in the you know, the Vietnam War yeah. or grandfather was in the Boer War or grandmother yeah. was the first woman to walk across Mount Tambourine solo or whatever. Mm. It was, everyone's got a story and everyone is, 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 is fascinating. And it is just, I think it's just easier for yeah. us to just go, you person who cut me off on your Hyundai XL, you're a fuckwit. Yeah. Rather than, 
oh, I wonder if everything's okay. Yeah. I wonder if you're all right. You're obviously but in a hurry for what, a reason. Did you ever see that interview that Carl, uh, Carl Sandilands did on Enough Rope with Andrew Denton? No, I didn't. I thought that was really interesting. It was a very complex and misunderstood man, Kyle. Yeah, but it was also just um, like, but you know, I mean, Andrew's such a skillful interviewer oh. and he sidestepped all the kind of, you know, he was trying to get to the heart of what was made, what made Kyle who he was, you know, mm. and this sort of um, confrontational, you know, uh, shock jock sort of persona. And whether or not you like Kyle Sandilands or agree or disagree with what he does, he is an individual <laughs> yeah. that has like some complex uh, things leading to that point. And I, I mean, I came away from that just going, holy shit, man, like, you know, that clickbait idea of, you know, we just want to say that person's this, that person's that. You don't have to like what someone does. No one's asking you to like it, but you have to acknowledge the fact that we are the sum of our parts. You know, lots of things go into who we are, you know, and look, it's fun to dismiss people and be cynical and sarcastic. It's fun. Like you feel like a badass, you know, it, it, it's fun to do that. But ultimately I'm like you, I just, I love meeting people and talking to them and, you know, I can get a good story out of most people, you know what I mean? And I just, all it, all it takes is, because most people think that they've got nothing to say, but then you find out what they're into. I remember a cab driver dropping me home one night and he was a, he had a, like a amateur interest in sound engineering. And I know shit about, obviously if you listen to TOEFOP, <laughs> I know nothing about sound engineering. <laughs> but this guy describing like, you know, tweaks and uh, gains and fades and stuff, I sat in that cab and listened to him for 20 minutes just as he talked about sound engineering because he was so passionate about it. I found it just like completely um, bewitching. Yeah, know? right. It's like to hear someone talk passionately about something of which I have no interest, but if they're into it, you know, I just think that there's tremendous uh, like uh, material there. Or it's just, it's just, it's, it's just, it interests me, you know. Like you see a film about like Winter's Bone. Have you seen that with Jennifer Lawrence, which is, my future f- ex-wife? No, <laughs> not yet. It's it's basically set. Uh, That's the one that she won the. She got the Academy Award nomination for. No, it's the, yeah. f- the film that kind of broke her. But it's all about you know. The, I think it's in West Virginia, so it's all these like meth labs in West Virginia, and it is a world of which I didn't know existed, of which I you know have no interest in visiting. But the director or the writer, whoever came with that story, obviously had some experience with that, and it was just. You never know what story you're going to get from someone you've met for the first time. You yeah. know, like who, it, it, could, it could be something that changes your life or your perspective forever, you know. So just dismiss someone on the surface as being, you know, whatever you think they are. Look, I do it. I'm not going to oh, say really? I don't, but I, I try to keep it in check. Yeah. I learned this week that science, science has figured out that a human moment, what we consider the present, mm. is 15 seconds long. Right. Right. So in that present moment, if you have that judgment, hold on for 14 more seconds. Yeah, right. Because that's how long it's going to take for there to be some reflection upon. Yeah. And that can be, I found that really freeing this week as, uh, you know, I got some weird health news this week and straight away I was like super confronted by it. I wanted to do everything I possibly could to escape the reality of this thing that's going on in my life that's you know a kind of a permanent factor of my life now mm. and so i just held on to it and in like 13 seconds 12 seconds 10 and after i was like okay well 
at least I can still do this and I can still do that. And, yeah. Oh, that's okay. Like it, it, it dissipates. Human beings have an amazing capacity to cope and adapt. Yeah. You know. But so often I used to act within those 15 seconds. Yeah. I would do something that would very male. relieve me of this reality, yeah. whether that, you know, be act out or. or, or- I, I had a friend who was a counselor who worked within a, like a women's shelter. And uh, he was saying, you know, the majority of the time why these women uh, couldn't confide in their boyfriends or their partners or their brothers or whatever was that men would hear about the abuse and their immediate response was, I need to fix and solve, you know, that is the, what do I do to change this? Mm-hmm. And he said the harder when you are counselling a guy like that, what you've got to explain to them is that when that feeling comes up, it's not implanted into your brain from some foreign entity which you can then go out and destroy it is coming from you. So in order to deal with that feeling, you can't externalize it, you know, no amount of, you know, revenge violence or, you know, uh, drinking or anything is going to affect the fact that you chemically are responding to that news in a certain way. That is the hard part is training yourself to go, okay. I mean, I have, uh, and I have an anxiety issue that, you know, I've sort of been dealing with like five or six years since I identified it. Like I didn't know I had anxiety, but um, I would find, I would get into situations. The problem for me was that I would get into situations that were stressful, you know, like a one out of 10 stressful situation and a 10 out of 10 stressful situation. My response to both would be exactly the same, yeah. which is <laughs> ultimate, my language, buddy. ultimate freak out, right? Yeah. And Gemma, like, you know, she would, especially when I was producing, you know, because producing can be very stressful and your job as a producer is a problem solver. Like you're trying to make something happen. You're trying to fulfill your director's dream. So turning no's into yeses all day long. All day long. And making people think it was their idea. Exactly. And and begging people for favors. So, you know, I'd get into situations where like we'd have a location cancel on us like the night before a shoot and I would have to scramble and I would fucking go into a panic. So I decided to go and see someone about it and... You know, I mean, it's it's a long story, but the essentially what she helped me realize is that, you know, because I lost my father at a young age, I had an imprint put on me very early on that your world can get turned upside down and can be really scary. Uh-huh. And I don't think I ever lost that. I think that my brain was like, when something changes, you know, push everything away and fucking start freaking out because, you know, someone's going to die. You know, it's, it's going to be bad. So it was, it was very, it's been very much that idea of um, recognizing, like I even have a little cartoon above my desk where I work that Gemma drew for me. It's a little angry face that yells and it says, thank you for your concern, angry Charlie, because I allow my inner child to freak out and cry and I go, I, I'm hearing you, I acknowledge it, it is scary, who knows, this could be a fucking disaster, but I'm an adult now, I've been an adult for quite some time, I can deal with this situation and what's the worst yeah. the worst scenario that can happen is fuck you know we lose a job i'm going to owe someone a bunch of money you know whatever it is none of it is like life-threatening or anything like that if it is a life-threatening situation i want full mode <laughs> panic mode you know i want fight or flight yeah but it's like stuff like you know finding out that you know you're gonna have to cancel i can't you know i have to cancel a trip because it was somewhere can, oh shit oh god i promise these guys is gonna come on and it would really eat me up So in exploring all that, I started to realize, and this is coming back to your point about the present, I don't breathe. Ah. (laughs) I found out I don't breathe. And I I don't know if it's related to, you know, the same incident of my father dying or if it's, you know, earlier than that, but 
I often hold my breath. And even, you know, friends and, you know, my partner definitely has noticed that I will sit with them on the couch and it's like, you haven't taken a breath in a minute. Huh. And it's, 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 it's obviously related to that stuff. And it's kind of, in a weird kind of way, I hold my breath consciously and subconsciously to heighten like a, a joyful moment, like, <gasps> you know, this is great. Mm-hmm. And also when I'm scared, <gasps> you know, I hold my breath. And so I very rarely breathe. And so I've been going to yoga. I mean, I went and saw, I was going to do meditation. I thought that would help me. And the person running the meditation class said, I can't work with you because you're not breathing and you're, you're dedicated to the freak out. Your body is freaking about having no oxygen. So you need to go do yoga to learn how to breathe. And I still don't have it down yet, but I'm getting an awareness now of just taking that breath. And it's so true that, you know, if you do any kind of relaxation, the first thing they do is take five deep breaths, you know, and just feel it going through your body. It's that 15 seconds, you know what I mean? It really is. Taking the breath and just yeah. like. You, you've touched on something that's super important in all this and that's the observance. Just w- noting that there is an angry Charlie. <laughs> that is 75% of the work. It really is. You're more than halfway. Yeah. Just knowing, just identifying. Oh, that's me doing that thing. Mm. That's that's huge. Yeah. And that you've managed to maintain possibly one of the most kind of regular acting gigs <laughs> in the country in a in a in a in a in a very seasonal uh, industry where you know people are winning gold logies one minute and then. Unemployed the next. Unemployed the next, yeah. man. You've worked. You've worked yeah. and worked I mean, I, for, I, for nearly, what, 15 years 15 now? You've worked years. nonstop pretty much. Not nonstop. I mean, look, there's been periods where it's, it's, it's been more... Uh, I figured it's an hour and 10 minutes. Probably talk about acting for a while. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I mean, it's the, the acting thing is weird. Like, I kind of have... I, I, I always wanted to just tell stories. Like I thought I wanted to be a director. And then after three years of film school, I was like, I have no fucking idea what a director does and looks pretty scary. And then I sort of just fell into acting. You know, I got spotted in an amateur play and that led to a professional play. I got an agent, got my first TV series. But I've ne- it's not like I've ever, I've never been an actor who's gone from job to job. I've never been that fortunate. Mm-hmm. I often will have large chunks of time in between jobs. Like if you look at my IMDb, it may look like, you know, oh, I've been consistently employed, but you got to remember, like, you know, you shoot a show, you know, in 2006, it's only three months work. And then for the rest of the time, you know, because our industry is so small, if you do a series here, no one's really going to touch you for six months because you're too closely identified with that show. So a job like Home and Away, uh, and before that, you know, the other show I did that was quite regular was Blue Healers. I was really lucky because they shoot 40, I mean, Home and Away is 46 weeks of the year. It's very rare that you get a job that is that regular where, I mean, I love it. Everyone there is great, but it is just the, the, the thing that is, is most heartening is that it's there. You know, for the first time in a long time, I have a paycheck, <laughs> you know, it's quite, and, and look, money doesn't make you happy, but it can take off a lot of stress. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask about this because the only, well, besides Channel V, which uh, was regular, I only did that, I did that for seven years. All the TV I've done has been series, even if that's, you know, three, it was three months of uh, those idol shows, whatever, three months with the, with the auditions thrown in, it was five mm. months. And so you're working on a set where there's 80 something people that make that show or 90 people that make that show. I'm working on The Bachelor right now. There's probably about 50 people that make this show, maybe more. By about three weeks before the end, when you're prepping for the finale, everyone's hustling for the next gig. 
Yeah. Everyone's trying to line up the next show yeah. because the job ends. Yeah. What's it like? What's the what's it like on a set where you are forty weeks a year? What what's the? Does people just go? Is it more a nine to five, clock in, clock out kind I of think thing? So I mean, the, what I have found about it, and it's by far and away the best set I've ever worked on. You know, like it's just everyone, everyone, because a lot of the, the crew have been on that show from the beginning, so they're like family. And when you're working 46 weeks the year together, it's the no dickheads policy because you've got to front up week after week. And look, I've never, I haven't encountered any dickheads in my time on the show. I'm sure there have been in the past, but I couldn't imagine that would last very long because it's an environment that doesn't respond well to kind of selfishness or, um, uh, uh, or, or disruptive kind of attitudes like i just it, it, it can't it's too big a machine you know and it's I mean? too close quarters you're like being on a boat basically exactly. it's disciplined as well it's got yeah. that set discipline and, and they move so quickly like they you know the, it is such a kind of big you know because i spend a lot of time in the production office as well because obviously i've got an interest in that side of things as well and seeing how they put the show together it's just it's incredible like i mean people there is this cultural cringe in australia about our soaps and you know our dramas and stuff but what i see those guys do i mean creating that much content you go into a, the plotting meeting on a monday they plot a week's worth of episode in two days they go in they have a whiteboard divided monday to friday the episodes and they have a list of all the characters and all the locations with restrictions on both they then have to map out a week's worth of storylines keeping in mind the show has been on air for 25 years and most stories have been done so trying to keep it fresh and original the fact that they even get anything to air to me is a miracle you know having been a producer and a writer you know, I've never worked that fast. Like I've, and, and the quality, like the, the, I think I'm very proud of the show. I am, I'm aware that we're not making Shakespeare, but I don't think anyone who works in the show knows we're but doing I would that. say to you, you're the, between you, you guys and neighbours, between Home and Away and neighbours, you're the closest to telling the modern Australian story that we've got. What do you mean? Like the, the, what it is to be, like if we were to look at Home and Away from 1994, mm. all right, 20 years ago, that would be the closest thing we've got to. Oh, this is a, a reflection of oh, what life was like. Yeah, yeah. What cultural attitudes at the time. Oh, she's brought the Asian boyfriend home. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. you know the first ever yeah. multicultural casting yeah. on those shows, which was a big yeah. fucking deal back in the day. There'd be promos about it. You I know? remember seeing an episode of Neighbours in like the late nineties or early two thousands where they were approaching the the topic of ecstasy. Like one of the characters was going to a dance club, and but it was I guess because they're a they're a G slot rather than a PG, and so they had restrictions on what. So they never once referred to ecstasy uh -huh. or drugs specifically. It was just this kid was like going out every night to clubs, dancing, drinking lots of water, and then like being really grumpy the next day in his uh -huh. labouring job. And I remember watching it, going, "This is actually really skillful because." You know, they obviously have decided we want to approach this topic, but there's a zillion things we can't say because yeah. of our time slot. Yet, as a, if you're a kid who, you know, was too young to know what ecstasy was, you would remember that or you would get an idea of it. And then when you're old, you're like, oh, shit. Like, I know yeah. what that episode was about now, yeah. you know. And it's like that episode of Degrassi when the guy got AIDS. It's like, wow. Oh, Degrassi, my God. Heavy. But I'm saying, like, it's, a, it's an important thing. You're part of the cultural narrative of the, of the country. Which yeah. is which is important, and it's a, it's a it's an important gig. When you when those shows, when it's sometimes, uh, what was his name on um, on uh, on Blue Healers? Alex was that his name? No, uh, no. Who's the, who was the boy on Blue Healers that you were? Oh, yeah, the character was called Alex. Yeah, Alex. So, yeah. yeah. When it comes, when, do they let you know? It's like, oh, look, he's going to die. 
Or do they do they do they talk you through it, or or, it's, or he's just going to leave? He's going to go off to Burma like that bloke in Sons and Daughters. What, what, what? Like when characters leave, when long term characters leave on these um, long term shows, do they take you aside six months out and go, I "You're think... going to want to start planning now because you've got about six months left well, the before way... the hot air ballooning accident when it all goes pear shaped." I, I think the way it works. So basically, you sign a contract. So I'm on a three year contract, uh-huh. right? But that contract has thirteen week options. So I mean, it's all in the the production's favor. So if in 13 weeks it's not working out, they only have to pay me out for 13 weeks. They don't have to pay me out for the three years. Um, so each, every 13 weeks, you know, I'll get a letter saying we would like to pick up his option for the next, you know, for this time period. Oh, fuck that. So <laughs> <laughs> That's awful. So, but I mean, but you get a sense, like I, I, I get it. Look, who knows? Maybe they are writing me out of the show. But I get the sense of, you know, where I fit in structurally, you yeah. know, I get a sense that they're, that, you know, that I'm going to be there for the duration of my contract. Like, I, I, I get that feeling. But, um, you know, I've had friends who have left shows and it is, you just get called into the office and it's like, look, um, just letting you know that you're, we're, gonna, you're gonna, we're not going to extend beyond this period. It's going to go sport fishing one day. Yeah. And uh, it's never going to come back. I mean, I've never died on a TV show. I would, la- I would like to do that. I'd like to actually... How? How would I like to die? Something spectacular. Yeah. You know, like Chuck Norris style, like a flame exploding, something like that. <laughs> um, I don't know, maybe like uh, you've seen the original Robocop, you know. Of course. When Ed 209 blows the guy away in the boardroom, just like yeah. multiple squids. That would be pretty cool. Just something that I never want to happen in my real life. <laughs> That's the perfect, you know, perfect opportunity to fantasize about my own death. <laughs> I had um, uh, Jess Toby sitting here telling me about what it was like to. We were talking about visiting your own funeral. Funeral. Oh, her character died. Didn't yeah, she? yeah. Bella, when Bella died, mm. that exactly. She was in this family environment that you described, mm. and she's watching these people whom she thought were her family, with photos of her in the actual church. And she talked to the actors afterwards. They're like, "Oh no, we were just crying because you were gone." So she's watching her oh, friends so having real emotion. Better. Yeah, so weird. Yeah. It was so totally, totally full on. I mean, that's the fun thing. Like the one thing I really do enjoy about acting is like if you you are vaguely emotional or in tune with your feelings, it's actually quite cathartic and fun to go into those areas in a safe environment where someone's going to call cut and, you know, like I've sort of done things, I've done – roles or, 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 or done storylines where, you know, you have to really get into a dark headspace and that's ordinarily not a place I like to spend too much time. But there is something kind of freeing and exciting about, I mean, it would be the same with music or, or anything where you're just going to do something dark, you know, you're just going to, you know, writing, you're just going to really explore those areas and see, like Gemma often thinks I'm morbid because I do spend an awful lot of time thinking about like, you know, my own death or her death or what's the most tragic thing that could happen to us what if you know you came home and found me dead and she doesn't want to think about that stuff but I think that's partly my writer brain and partly my actor brain going I need to think about this stuff because it's it's interesting you know and that's the kind of fuel for the actor that's why you don't want to play a heroic character they're the boring ones the guy who has the the right answer for every situation that's not fun Unless you because it's so unrealistic. What you want to do is like explore the real kind of like darker side and the flaws, and that's what you know. That's what makes us the thing that we can all share as human beings is that we're all flawed. You know what I mean? I was going to say the only person who's allowed to get away with that. Speaking of RoboCop, is Peter Weller as Buckaroo Bonsai. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's the only person who's allowed to be the lead 
you phony you lead trumpet player of the hottest rock and roll band in the world, brain surgeon, <laughs> advisor to the president of the United States, and the only person who's going to possibly save the world from an invasion of an alien race, all named John. <laughs> Buckaroo Bonsai across the ace to mention what I've got. Jeff Goldblum's more interesting films. Yeah. <laughs> Jeff Goldblum, the guy who's uh, been in, was it like Jurassic Park? He's been in the Independence Day, some three of the like, highest grossing films of all time, starring Jeff Goldblum. He's <laughs> like, a- who would have thunk that? He's a very interesting cat. And there's that great scene. Have you met him? I have. Oh, yeah? He's very tall. Yeah. Like, lankily and odd. And I'd say he's kind of like... He is kind of odd. He is kind of odd. He is the guy who... He plays jazz piano. He's an exceptionally good jazz really? pianist. Very, very good. And, in fact, there was a... a Someone did a, uh, a product launch a few years ago in the car park at Coachella. Mm. This is the very hip uh, LA, uh, outside of LA Palm Springs Music Festival. Oh. Uh, Jeff Goldblum's jazz trio uh, was doing a gig in the car park at Coachella. So That's it was all crazy. these um, incredibly beautiful LA fashion and music people are, yeah. with flowers in their hair and, you know, yeah. sleeve tattoos are filing by. There's the guy Jeff from The Goldblum. Fly. That's crazy. Playing jazz piano. Brundlefly. Playing piano. Brundlefly. <laughs> you want to see Brundlefly play <laughs> piano? <laughs> I'd love it if his tooth just fell out on the keyboard. <laughs> Oh, that was a. I really liked that one. That was a good one. And the it made fly? me, ma- yeah, oh, yeah, incredible. Really made me forgive him for Earth Girls Are Easy because that was just. Oh my God, is that that's with um, Jim Carrey? Jim too, Carrey's right? Jim yeah, Carrey's and first, Damon and Damon Wayans. Jim, Jim Carrey's first major film. What if, is it? Do you see some films one Sundays and go, how the fuck did they get money for this? Like, what was the pitch? Oh, I don't know, man. Eighties. What's cocaine? Yeah, apparently, that's right. Yeah, Russell you know, was directing. Apparently, uh, we we started this podcast talking about podcasts. Yeah. You have. It's podcasts are really interesting in Australia because the really successful ones are all um, repurposed radio. Yeah. It's the Hamish and Andy, yeah, the best it's, it's the Kyle and Jackie, it's the um, Richard Feidler, it's other da, 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 da. But Tofop isn't. Mm. Tofop is its own thing, yeah. and it is it's a it's a beast of its own. Mm. So much so that you're taking it to the LA Podcast Festival, which is just like the Coachella of podcasts. It's a big. Did you have you been? I've got tickets this year. Oh, cool. I, I couldn't get in last year. I bought my tickets too late. I couldn't. I couldn't get in. Awesome. So I'm going this year. What, yeah. You know, it must be a thrill to 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 go along to that. Yeah. Well, it's just uh, Will. I mean, it's only a recent kind of thing. Like Will, sort of. Uh, and this is what I love about Will is he kind of just, he just does. You know what I mean? Like he just kind of does things. And when we were recording, you know, this new series of Tofop, he was saying, "Look, um, you know, I know obviously you committed to the show and you can't get time away, but." would you consider flying to LA for a weekend to do this podcast festival? And I was like, uh, yeah, like, of, of course. Like, why haven't I thought of that before? Like, so that's the plan is I'm basically just going to finish up work on Friday, jump on a plane, fly to LA, do the podcast, leave, go straight from the podcast back to the airport, jump on a plane and be back at work on Monday. <laughs> that is the plan. Unreal. But I think it's cool. Like I actually sort of like the idea that that's the express purpose that I'm going, you know, because Sometimes you'll do those trips and like, well, maybe I should go there for a week and have some meetings or whatever. No, you know what? It's just about the podcast. And I really, I really love doing it. Like I, I kind of, I missed it when I wasn't doing it. And I'm a podcast fan. I have like, you know, close to 20 podcasts loaded on my phone at any one time that I listen to. And they're all different, you know. I don't listen to radio anymore. Who does? Why I would re- you? I really <laughs> don't. I listen to bespoke content that is speaks perfectly to my brain. I just long form conversation. Yeah. It's just much more interesting. And I don't care about, you know, someone put like, you know, if you listen to the Nerdist podcasts, they obviously are getting people on junkets, you know, Tom Cruise is going to come in. But it's not that three minute soundbite interview. They're going to talk about everything. And that's much more interesting to mm. me because 
I think we're so trained after years and years of entertainment, television and radio of knowing what that celebrity is going to say when they're asked those questions. In, those in eight seconds. Minutes. Exactly. Yeah. So this is just like... Have you listened to the cruise one yet? The, on the Nerdist? Yeah. yeah amazing. It's pr- there are about, I'm going to say over the hour, it's probably about 95 seconds of cruise when he just drops out of of ninja mode and you yeah. actually hear him. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's sometimes it's in the middle of a sentence, you hear him just kind of shift out of it and then come back in. You're like, mm. and it's worth listening to it for that hour just to hear him shift out of that. And you go, oh, wow. Yeah. You're a human being. Totally. Under all that. Yeah. It's kind of funny. Like he just, I mean, he cops a really hard time in Scientology in general. Like, I don't know how I feel about it. To me, well, it's- Anyone of high profile cops a hard time. Yeah. Not- but I think there's particular relish in, yeah. you know, it, like taking him down and joking about his sexuality and all that kind of stuff. And, the only things you ever read about Tom Cruise is that he's too polite or he's too nice. Mm. And it's like, is that where we're at now? You know, like he turns up on time, you know, he learns people's names, you know, he's engaged from everything. He does all his own stunts, produces his own movies. Yeah, but we need to, we need to find something to take him down. Look, again, you don't need to like what he does, but just respect <laughs> the fact that he's a complex individual, you know? So you're going to be in, there's a well-trod path between you know, the star factory that is home and away yeah. and, and Los Angeles. Yeah. Is, is that kind of on the horizon or are you, yeah. and, are you and Gemma more like, let's form the beachhead here, let's David Michaud, let's, let's make something big and then go over with it? Um, it's sort of it, one or the other. Like, yeah. I mean, Gemma and I have a feature that we've been trying to get up for about three years now and it's... It's in a pretty, you know, she was just over in Cannes shopping it around there. We've um, got a new producer who's really great and we're getting really, we're having really great meetings and people And the funny, people like will it. pay 12 bucks for a movie, like I see a movie for an hour and a half, walk out of it and go, eh, have no idea that like oh, five years work. of oh, someone's yeah. life. I mean, I think I wrote the first draft in 2006. So this has been, you know, it's changed a lot, but. Is this the one from your mum's diary? No, 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 no. This is a completely different thing. This is more, this is uh, something that, as an idea that I had that Gemma and I have sort of worked on together, but. It's been one of those things of um, the way I try and describe it to people is trying to get a film made is like doing a house inspection blindfolded. Huh. Like you just literally are going around and you'll open some doors and it's a fucking cupboard. It's like, okay, let's try the next door. And then there is no way to make a film. Like I, we were kind of naive when we started. We just, you know, we attached an executive producer who's very experienced. We just thought, well, <laughs> it's going to happen now. No, Pass me the Grammy, the way, Oscar. <laughs> yeah, but the way he made his film was completely different to the way Michaud made his films. Like there's a zillion different ways. There's no set pathway. And Gemma and I, you know, we come from a lo-fi, low-budget background. You know, we made a shit ton of music videos and short films and she's a commercial director. We can get shit done. Like we know how to stretch a dollar and stuff. But then there's a whole, it's a whole different world because, you know, it's expensive to make a film and if you're going to get people to put money into that then do you really want to just like shoot it rough and ready it can work depending on the story but for this particular script i think just needs a bit more polish we're still going low budget around about you know two and a half three million that's what we're looking to to micro budget micro budget yeah it really is it's still a lot of money i mean trust me i've been trying to raise private finance with this for a while and it's just look that my I, my dream, what I want to be is a is a creator of content. If I never act again, then but I'm writing or producing, then that's okay. I'd I'd prefer to keep acting, but you know, maybe no one will hire me. Maybe I'll just have to write my own material. That's kind of what I'm aiming for: is to be a self-generating artist. And uh, 
like the, I feel like the film is in the best possible shape script-wise. I've been working with a bunch of different script editors, like uh, Hollywood-based script editors, Australian-based, and I'm not precious about my writing. I want it to be liked. You know, I want it to be uh, complex and have depth. So the more feedback I get from people, I mean, you've got to be discerning and filtering that stuff out. But, you know, I, I just think it just enriches, you know, the work to have people read it and have read-throughs. And I love it. You know, I love getting my friends together and putting a script down in front of them that I've written and hearing them say it. And even if some scenes are shit and some lines don't work, it's, it's tremendously satisfying and it's fun, you know. And if I can do this as a living, like, I don't need to be rich. You know, I've never really, like, aspired to be rich. I just want to be able to keep doing what I'm doing. You know, I've managed to do it for 15 years, you know, and there's been really sort of terrifying times where I'm flat broke and there's been other times where I, I, it, it's a bit better. But if I averaged it out, it's been pretty good, you know. And Gemma, when I would have those panic attacks, about, oh, my God, like, you know, how the fuck are we going to pay rent? Gemma would just have to take my hand and she'd remind me that we haven't had to work for a boss for five years, you know. We haven't had to go into an office. Everything we do is off our own steam. So if we're not working or we're not getting work, then maybe we're not working hard enough. And all that tells us is that we just need to, you know, push open a few more doors or just work a little bit harder. I mean, Jem is, she's a workaholic, you know, and she's a perfectionist, you know, and it's tremendous to be in such close proximity to someone that you love, but you also admire, like her work ethic and her dedication is incredible. It's a, it's, it's really, I, I feel very fortunate. I always say to people, you know, in our personal relationship, in our professional relationship, I'm the dinghy and she's the outboard motor <laughs> because she has the drive and the ambition and I keep her afloat. I, I'm the one who just like keeps the ship steady and I, it's, it's just lucky, you know, and I sort of feel like as I'm getting older, the more, the people that I'm drawing into my life for stuff like, you know, podcasts and, you know, the, the film are all people that I just want to spend time with you know like that's the goal isn't it to work with your friends you know to have a job where it's just i mean if i would love to just do this every day you know it's like but it's like we said at the start at the highest of high levels you know i heard a story the other day about how um ice cube got onto 21 jump street um what (laughs) sorry so ice cube plays the cop on the Channing Tatum Tatum Jonah Hill reboot of 21 Jump Street. I heard a story the other day of how that happened. Jonah Hill was at a party, walked up to Ice Cube Mm. and says, we're making 21 Jump Street. I want you to be the police chief because the joke is so amazing (laughs) that you were in NWA and you sang a song called Fuck the Police. You should be the police chief. Here's my email address. Here's the, I'll send you the script right now. I'm going to call you about it tomorrow. Yeah. And that was it. As you said at the very start of this, it wasn't agents. It wasn't managers. It wasn't all kinds of people in between. It was one mm. person walking up to another person and saying, boom, let's make this happen. Yeah. And it took me, honestly, I, I wish I could say, I'd learned some things very slowly. It took me only like the last year that I went, oh, all right. The people that, and it was Anna Luno who I interviewed on this show a little while ago. It was right after I hit stop. She said, um, the people who shoot my cover art, they're just the same friends who shot my cover art 10 years ago, but now yeah. they run photography studios. Yeah. The people that shoot my videos are the people that I shot videos with in high school, mm. but now they run creative agencies. Yeah. It's the same people, yeah. but we just all kind of grow together. Yeah, and, and, that's, that- and, that's, and I think in a creative sense too, 
because it isn't like a systematic approach to your work. It's not like you go to an office and clock on or whatever. That's the importance is that growth. You know what I mean? Like, especially, you know, for what Gemma and I do, we've worked with a bunch of different DOPs, designers over the years. And the ones you, you like, it's more than just you like their work. They're a great presence to have on set. Mm. You know, like uh, one of our DOPs, it's just nothing is, is too big a challenge for him. You know, he's so practical. He gets excited. The more difficult and unlikely it is we can get this shot, the more he wants to go for it. You know what I yeah. mean? And that and that's that's what I, I love collaborating. You know, I mean, I, I write in isolation and stuff, but the fun part is then bringing that out and then collaborating and, and taking feedback. And, you know, you got to be, like I said, selective with the people you, you do that with, but... You know, you were saying earlier in the podcast that you, you get that sense with some people within the first five minutes. And I think that I have that, you know, uh, there's a certain sensibility with, um, you know, creative people where I'm just like, well, just anything you want to do, just call me and, I, you know, like you need me to come to a voiceover, I'll do it. You want me to be in your short film, I'll do it. You know, you need me to help you write something, I'll do it. That's because I just like you and I think that there's a chemistry here. And, you know, that's the philosophy of TOEFOP is just like, Will and I like talking at each other, you know. And even if we had no audience, I still reckon we'd, we'd do it because there's something about recording it, you know, it makes it real, you know, and it's sort of evidence that you're not just crazy that, you know. <laughs> I've always been a fan and I noticed this when I did and we should wrap pretty soon, but yeah. I, um, I, it's the things that you do like that, the creative, it's pushing that creative juice around in your brain that fuels the creativity elsewhere in your week. Yeah. Like if you did this once a week with Will, that when you're writing, I would say to you that your writing is far better. 100%. Do you listen to Smodcast? I, I used to. Kevin I, Smith has written two films based on conversations that he's had in his podcast. He and Scott Mosier would joke around about some stupid concept and they would talk it out, the story of, oh, well, this is what would happen. And then he's gone and written a film. Will and I have done that a hundred times. Will and I have come up with so many films and story ideas. And like, we can see it as we're talking it out. We both like, without saying it, go, it's a really good idea. Maybe we don't want to be sharing this, but it's true. Like it's, it's just that collaboration and, 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 and the energy exchange. I don't know if the microphones, you know, they heighten it, like because you have to sort of deliver a show that, you're sort of driven to do it. Like maybe if you and I took the mics away, the conversation wouldn't be as kind of as driven. But oh, I'd say, look, I've done I've done a lot of radio, man, and I don't think you or I. That's uh, why I deliberately do the show with that headphones so people don't play with their voices. Yeah. <laughs> no, really, because when people hear their voice, they get they do it bigger like this when yeah. they get their headphones on. They go, <laughs> they tend to radio get, what up, get right up on the mic, voice. you know, and stuff yeah. like that. But I, I think there's something very intimate about this form of broadcasting mm. and that I'm, I'm very excited to be a part of. And yeah. I'm a little late to the game, but um, I'm, I'm grateful that you've blazed the trail. <laughs> <laughs> there's many more before us. Um, mate, you're a fucking legend. That was a cracker. Oh, good. I'm glad. Thanks, man. I'm going to take your photo if that's all right. Yeah, of course. No problem. Thanks for coming around. Clothes on or off? <laughs> And that, friends and lovers, was Charlie Clawson. You can find him on Twitter at CX Clawson, C-X-C-L-A-U-S-E-N. I can't thank him enough for being so generous with his time and being so generous with how much of the story that he was able to share with me. I'm real inspired by that. I'm very inspired by a guy like that who's, who's, you know, he was just not afraid to talk about some of the things he talked about. He went to India and was like, you know what, not for me. And, you know, it's real open-hearted lovely 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 guy i wish him nothing but 
incredible success. I mean, he's got incredible success. I mean, geez, his podcast is amazing. But, uh, you know, definitely um, one of the most important faces in this new realm of digital broadcasting. I'm really excited for him and Will, and I'm really excited for what's going to happen with him next. He's a a fab, fab gent. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks for being a part of this show. Once again, I hope that you can be a part of my anniversary show. Send me your questions. Um, You can email them to me. Just use the um, email address, I mean the mailing list um, address. Uh, You can subscribe to the mailing list, osherginsberg.com. And if you've got a mail out from me, just write back to that and I I get all those emails. So, um, yeah, have a great week. I hope... um, I hope I feel better by this time next week. I hope I'm not so quite so horrifically affected with plague. Um, but yeah, thanks so much for uh, being here and making this part of my job a really beautifully satisfying part of my job. Cool. Have a good week and sleep well and dream of beautiful things. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.